Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tron Conquest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the TalkHouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week, we've paired up a couple of old friends and one-time tour mates, Sharon Van Etten and Jonathan Myberg. This pairing was especially fun for me since I had the pleasure of putting these two together in a different context many years ago when I was editor of the AV Club. Sharon and Jonathan performed an amazing version of the Tom Petty-Stevie Nicks duet Stop Dragging My Heart Around for the site's AV Undercover series. Seeing their faces together on this Zoom brought back that fun memory, and it was great seeing them reconnect. Van Etten is a singer and songwriter who's been making records for the past decade plus, growing and changing and taking chances in exactly the way you hope truly talented people will. Her amazing early records were quietly intense, very confessional affairs, but she burst from the seams with subsequent releases. In 2019, she released Remind Me Tomorrow, which brought in bigger sounds and colors and an entirely different kind of confidence to her songwriting and performance. She gives partial credit in this chat to producer John Congleton, who was recommended to Van Etten by none other than Jonathan Myberg. Earlier this year, Van Etten released another incredible album called We've Been Going About This All Wrong, which puts into intense songs some of the feelings we've all been feeling the past couple of years. You know what I'm talking about. Check out a little bit of Mistakes from that new album, and check out Van Etten on the Wild Hearts Tour over the next few months with Angel Olsen and Julian Baker. Today's other guest, Jonathan Myberg, is best known in the music world as the driving force behind the band Shearwater, which he started way back in the late 90s as an offshoot of his previous band, Ockerville River. But under this name, Myberg has created a vast and varied catalog that combines his writerly mind with sometimes moody, sometimes joyous music. Shearwater just released their first album in six years. It's called The Great Awakening, and it's what a lazy podcast host might refer to as a return to form, or at least more austere earlier vibes. Don't let that six-year gap fool you, though. Myberg has been plenty busy. He's got another band called Loma with the members of Cross Record, and they've got a third album on the way. Oh, and Myberg wrote and released an incredible book called A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey, which rolls up history, science, and travel into one really beautifully written piece. As you'll hear in this conversation, he's already started working on another book. But for podcasting purposes, here's a little bit of a Shearwater song. This is Empty Orchestra from The Great Awakening. As you'll hear, Van Etten and Myberg are old friends who toured together long ago, but hadn't seen each other in person until very recently, when Van Etten's tour took her to Hamburg, where Myberg is currently living. They talk about writing songs, and specifically about how gibberish can become lyrics, which I always find fascinating. Myberg remarks on Van Etten's transformation as a stage performer over the years, and they even chat about Sharon's son, specifically his relationship to the movie Cool Runnings. Enjoy. you handle it when people come up to you and want an interaction of some kind? And I guess it just depends on how you're approached, right? Usually before I can say anything, I get a little choked up personally. Yeah. You know, and the fact that anyone even 
can like identify me, you know, or spot me or whatever. It's like, it's still very surreal that it happens. Yeah. How about you? I mean, it doesn't happen to me all that often. It's happened enough that I'm really glad it doesn't happen a lot. Because I think if it happened all the time, it would drive me fucking crazy. But on the one hand, it's like, it's wonderful if somebody wants to like, thank you for something that you made or something that meant something to them. I mean, that's the, that's the most precious thing. I mean, it's, I mean, we're not in this for the money. (laughs) So it's, uh, (laughs) you know, that feeling that you've made something that connected with another person is priceless. On the other hand, though, also sometimes you have a feeling that the person you're talking to somehow wants something from you that you couldn't possibly ever give them. You know, when I think about celebrities and being followed around, and even when they're not followed around, whenever they meet someone new, I could imagine that being part of their insecurity whenever they meet someone, that maybe they aren't in it all for the right reasons, and they second-guess anyone that they meet. And I don't know, I think that would be, and I would never want to leave my house if that was the case. Yeah, I imagine that someone like Paul McCartney basically lives in fancy house arrest. I know, and then living around security cameras and gates and, you know, people having to vet people for you. I'm I'm glad I'm not there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't, whatever they pay, it's not, it doesn't seem worth it in a lot of ways. I'm sure they're just at peace with, um, you know what, I think I have enough friends. I don't think I need to make any new ones. (laughs) Yeah, but at the same time, you're a public character. So your whole thing is about transmitting, but the receiver, you, you turn the receiver off after a while. And like being present, right? Being present and being able to connect with people is a huge part of what we do, right? So. Maybe having a really intimidating or frightening kind of persona is is actually a really canny strategy. <laughs> oh, man, you don't make me want to pivot, pivot my career right now. <laughs> a long time ago, you told me that the name you wanted for your secret solo project. I, I, quiet bitch. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I think of that all the time. My electron, my my dark, noisy electronica stuff. Yeah. It's still, I still save some demos under that title. You think you'll actually ever use it? I don't know. I don't know. But I I laugh every time, you know, when you just get in different headspaces of uh, sonics, you know, and it's just like, okay, well, this is when I want to write piano stuff. This is when I want to write guitar stuff. And this is just like weird noise. But I think about it. (laughs) How do you know at this point, like, what's a, because you record under your own name, do you feel like that is you? You know, it's funny. I kind of regret staying under my, my actual name because, you know, I feel as a, if you have an artist name, it's easier to separate yourself a bit from it. And I'm just over some 13 years into a career. Can I just start a band name now that it kind of has changed from being solo to, you know, it's like solo, songwriter, you know, all those titles that get attached to anyone that sings and writes their own songs, and especially being a female. Yeah. But I don't know. I feel like it might morph. It might morph into a different project eventually, because if I write something that doesn't feel somewhat autobiographical or have a really strong sense of melody or something like I'll, I'll put it in a folder and just say, you know, there's something to this. I don't know what it's for. Maybe I'll give it to someone or someone can help me finish it or whatever. But hopefully eventually I can just have a band name or something. 
<laughs> I'm trying to think of instances now where this has ever happened, where somebody has a quote unquote solo career and then becomes a band. It seems like it always goes the other way. <laughs> I just like, I feel like as I've learned how to let go and collaborate with more people and I'm learning how to have a touring band, I feel like I'll, I'll be leaning on my bandmates more in the studio earlier on than I had before. Yeah. I know it's kind of, I just feel like I've had somewhat of a backwards career, but I'm very curious how that would change my writing in the studio. I actually, I don't ever write in the studio. <laughs> you don't write in the studio? Like you have the songs before you go in? Yes. I mean, do you tend to write in the studio? <sighs> That's an amorphous kind of thing. I mean, the the Shearwater record that we just did was made at a studio, but it was in the house that was next door to where I was living in the trailer during the early days of the pandemic. So I was also making breakfast in there. So the line between what was the studio and what was the residence was, was pretty blurry. But were you writing as a band or did you go into the studio just you at first and then it became other musicians? At this point, I mean, I haven't played with a band since 2018. That was a, such a long evolution from having a, a you know, a core band that was a fixed group of people to that eventually kind of starting to splinter and, and fly apart. And then I got new people that I worked with and I, that felt really weird at first. But over time, I've started to really embrace the fact that, okay, for a tour, there's a group of musicians. For an album, there's a group of musicians. It doesn't have to be this like marriage. You, know, you don't have to have this open-ended commitment for all time based mostly on passive aggression. And, you know, it, 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 like the, especially I think as you get older, these things start to, you know, you're not 22 years old anymore and people have demands in their lives and their time that you know, or don't make it possible for them to get in a van for three weeks or whatever. It seems like now there's just sort of a group of people that um, is there for one project, one album, one tour, and maybe some of them will come along to the next one, or maybe they'll take an exit ramp after that point. And it is fun to work with new people. But to answer your question that I started with, um, it was me and Dan Dzinski, who's also my bandmate in Loma. I had a few little ideas for songs, but I didn't really know what we were tiptoeing into. And we started by making a whole bunch of really long instrumentals, like 45-minute instrumentals, just to explore sound for fun and not worry about songs yet. When did you start writing and collaborating process on the record? And did you have subject matter in mind before the writing started? Mm, no. For me, it always it comes from a feeling like a general, like a wordless feeling first. And I try to make the music that evokes that feeling. Or I just start trying to make music and notice if I'm getting a feeling from it and then chase that. But And then the, sometimes there'll be a phrase or two of the lyrics that's there from the beginning, but that doesn't usually solidify until the end. And I don't even really know sometimes what the songs are about until, until they're finished. I do hope that I am able to let go in a, in a space like that with other musicians. But I get very insecure when I'm playing and I... If I'm if I'm singing stream of consciousness over a melody, but it usually starts with a feeling and a melody and I'm just I'm playing until I have some type of form. Yeah. And like phrasing is usually there and melody from verse to chorus or whatever you want to call it is there. But I, you know, I tend to record stream of conscious for like 10, 15 minutes. And then I'll listen back to it and pull meaning from phrases or just phrases that I like and build around those. But it sounds pretty similar to what you do. 
<laughs> but yeah, I, I always feel like when you're singing nonsense, you never sing anything that sounds wrong. Mm-hmm. Like you'll never pick a word that like doesn't sing well. Your unconscious mind is a pretty good singer in that way. Because <laughs> when you mm-hmm. risk, when you just write the words out, sometimes you'll write out words and they'll be pretty good. But then once you try to sing them, it's just like, nope, nope this ain't working. <laughs> When you think of a voice as another instrument, you know, it has its timing and, and syncopations that whenever I write things out, I, I try to tap it out to be like, no, it needs this many syllables. And like, these are the emphases because mm-hmm. even if it is nonsense, I know however it's articulated, you know, even in the nonsense articulation, <laughs> it's there's something to that. Yeah. And sometimes I'll just write out what the nonsense seems to be, even if it's just complete gibberish. And then I'll keep that as part of the document and then keep referring back to it if I get stuck on something. And often a line that I'm like, that's not anything will end up (laughs) there because I just can't find anything that seems to sing better or it seems to mean something by itself in some way. We did some takes actually on on the record where I started doing scratches through the main vocal microphone that I used. And some of that stuff actually ended up in the final thing where I had no idea what was going to come out of my mouth. But what I did was I couldn't beat it. I guess you're comfortable enough to do that with Dan. Have you done that before? (laughs) Not like that. That's actually, that's quite special because Dan and I have now known and worked together for for quite a while. Dan is so unselfconscious in himself that he really encourages that energy in, in you. And with Loma, it's like that too, which is me and Dan and Emily Cross. We're not afraid to do really embarrassing things in front of each other. <laughs> or mostly not afraid, you know, not, not afraid enough that we actually, um, we, we do dumb things. <laughs> 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 That's a good friend. Yeah, oh, he's wonderful. <laughs> Dan's just, he's just a sweetheart. He, he's extremely talented and extremely humble which is a funny combination. I didn't even know that he played drums really until we did the second Loma record. He let me play drums a lot on the first Loma record, which I am not a good drummer at all. (laughs) And I was like, why did you let me do that? (laughs) You were sitting there the whole time and you could play rings around me. He's like, well, it sounded fine. Now I've heard you play drums though. Oh, very minimally. You know, I like certain beats and I like, syncopating them over multiple tracks. When I was making Are We There and, and Zeke, my drummer at the time, was playing drums, Zeke Hutchins. Mm-hmm. You know, he would play drums, but everything that I anticipated was kind of the opposite. And so we 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 played on that a little bit and would, you know, offset each other's styles by having sometimes two or three drum tracks on a song. But at, that's around the time I was experimenting a little bit with uh, drum machine programming. and mm-hmm. And so that kind of informs the way that I play. I can't drum very fast. I can't do very complicated beats, but they're usually counterintuitive for what a a real drummer would play. (laughs) The fun of playing with other people is when they do things that you wouldn't do. (laughs) And that does get sort of lost sometimes in the the process, like I did on this last record, where a lot of it was just me and, and Dan. Um, And then Emily Lee, who came in later on and was sort of, even though she didn't play all that much on it, she was very present kind of as a producer kind of character in the background in the final stages of it. Just before the pandemic, we brought in the, the drummer to play for a couple of days. And then also like a, some horn players. And But the strings were all done remotely. I never even met the person who, who did them. That's so wild. <laughs> Do you feel like the um, with having to pace out recording and do things long distance has it benefited the creative process or do you think it's just open new avenues for you or did you find it difficult 
or both? <laughs> I think it made it made me more willing to mess with stuff that people sent, mm -hmm. which is partly because they're not in the room there with you. So you don't feel like you're going to bother them. I mean, the, the strings, we only scored strings out for four or five of the songs in the Shearwater record. And then this engineer, Theo Karen recorded them in LA with they had one string player, Dina Maccabee, who just brought in a bunch of violins and violas and she played everything. And then we got those tracks back. They sounded great, but then we started dropping them into other songs and then you know, pitching them down or slowing them down. And, and we loved the way that they sounded. And so there, there are strings throughout the record, but really a lot of them are just repurposed from the third track. And at the last, at the end of the record, there's a, a string cue that's just all the strings that were recorded for the record all played at once together. <laughs> and I don't know that I would have had the guts to do that if I'd like actually had the quartet in there and recorded their parts. And it reminds you that it's just, these are just sounds we're making. You can do anything to them. There's nothing particularly sacred necessarily about a a single performance. Have you worked with string players a lot before? Uh, yeah, over the years. One thing I really love about string players, when and it is a blast to actually be in the room with them, I mean, you've done this, they assume that listening to one another is like a precondition for making music, even if they don't like each other, <laughs> which I feel like most bands, it takes forever to learn that, you know, especially dudes, you know, young dudes. <laughs> it's like, me, Just me! Trying to be, trying to be loud. Turn my guitar up, turn my bass up, turn the drums up, <laughs> turn it all up. And the string players are like, no, we have to we have to blend and make this sound together. Even if you can tell that the viola player hates the cello player, it doesn't matter. They're just like, that's not how music works. Music is listening. Right. Also, like where they, you know, it's like a very clear role that you have, you know, like you have to kind of steer clear of certain like if you can't go in the cello, like the cello is the cello, it stays in the low end and like the, the viola has to kind of stay in the mids and the violin stays in the highs. And there's no, there's no misinterpreting where your part is or where your role is, where I feel like in like synth land can be tricky, like synth and bass and even sometimes guitar with all the pedals that people have now, it's a lot more it's up for debate when someone's in your sonic zone. Yeah, who's got the low frequencies on this? Yeah, so like you have to define them more often, I think, when you're not, when it's not a defined role. I keep making recordings that are darker and darker and darker frequency. I just don't like high end that much. And the thing was, when you do that, especially for the backing track, and you really keep the like the high mids out of most things. Then when you put the vocal on, it just soars over the thing because there's nothing in the way. Absolutely. It's really, really nice. And and it also, it, stuff that's kind of dark but clear, you also just want to turn it up. But also like how how I think a lot of people listen to music now, like on these headphones that we're on, higher end is even more painful um, yes. because of yeah. the streaming world. And, um, and so I, I have a hard time you know, I, as I'm even making or mixing a record, I'm anticipating how people are listening to it, too. Um, I mean, I first make it how I want to make it, you know, yeah. but then as you're fine tuning at the, the final stages, I think about how people listen to it and, and make sure that it's even the all the high frequencies are a little less, like softened. <laughs> or uh, you, bless you. <laughs> That's part of why your record sounds so good. But those frequencies just are, are, I mean, they're not present in older recordings. I think there it's, mm -hmm. it's like a, a set of options that became available starting in the, in like the eighties really. And, and just because they're there doesn't mean you should automatically use them. <laughs> Absolutely. It is funny to think though, you know, when you're done with, you know, you're mixing your record and you're listening to it on the monitors and everything, you think, okay, no one is ever going to hear this like this, except <laughs> me. 
I, I hate even having to think in that way because, you know, I make, I try to make it, you know, I'm, as I'm sure you do just as a listening experience, as a, as a piece, right. Yeah. But you have to listen to, in all these other ways to, and find that middle ground without feeling like you're, what's the word? You Losing the life of the. The recording, losing yeah, the life of yeah. the song, the thing yes, you like exactly. about. Yes, <laughs> exactly. As long as you're not killing it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And low end is especially tricky that way. Like it's, it's you know, you'll have some bass sounds that just sound gargantuan on some speakers and then you put on another one and they're just gone. So yeah. it's like you end up having to layer things on top of them so that they'll read another. I mean, how do you solve that problem? I don't, so I don't think you always can, but you know, I think I know it's there because I, you know, you listen in the car, you listen on headphones, you, you know, you listen on shitty speakers, you listen on really nice speakers and you're just like, I guess I'm just, I'm listening, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just, how do I like listening to it? You can only chisel so much, right? But yeah, as far as listening to your own record, I mean, it went, at some point you're, you're not really immersed anymore, right? You're just in the fine-tuning zone. Yeah, where some of the changes you make are probably things that nobody's going to notice consciously. Though I always tell myself that, like, but but what if what if I could just get, you know, like, <laughs> how do you know when you're done? Oh God, that question. I mean, oh, if so, you, you, know, you don't have to answer. <laughs> I think the type of workers we are, I just feel like we would work and work and work and work on it, and you know, and build and build and build and build it, and I just. I have to be given a deadline and I also have to tell myself that I have more things I want to do. <laughs> yeah. But I know when a song is done being written, I think I'm still learning in the studio when, you know, I think if you're like, I have two weeks worth of studio time and then, you know, if I really have to fight for something, I will, but I usually just try to make it done. <laughs> it is nice to have that, that, that end point where you go like, well, we're going to have to have something by the end of this. Especially with this last deadline because of COVID and everything backed yeah. up. You know, I knew that if I wanted to have my record out at a certain time, if I lost my place in line, it wasn't like I got pushed back one. I would get pushed to the back of the line, which would have meant my album couldn't have come out this year. Right. That's another thing. I mean, I, I gave up completely on the idea of, of touring in a conventional way on this record because I knew that even if everything started to open up again, the line for the venues for touring was just going to be so long that there was no way I could I could get to it. No, it's, it was, it's been pretty intense. I don't even know if I told you, but after, you know, that bus that we had yeah, that was falling apart and the driver was falling asleep while driving while we were all trying to sleep. This is the bus you're using in Europe that... that I saw you and you were a few days into the tour. Yes. And we didn't make it after Paris. We had to let the bus go because the toilet was leaking. The window was like he taped the window. The side of the bus was totally scratched from like, go, I don't know, hitting cars, going up against walls, like rumble strips, like God knows what. And um, this was like the last available bus a year ago. So we had we had reserved the bus a year ago, and it was like the only company that had it. Yeah. And we ended up feeling so unsafe from the conditions that we left the bus in Paris and trained it the rest of the tour. Wait, you you went by train for the rest of your tour? You were going to the UK? There wasn't any other option. Yeah. And, you know, there are other people that had their tour canceled and rescheduled or pushed or whatever, and I just... And I know it's happening to so many people with, you know, there's not enough help and also there's nothing available. So it's just 
you know, like even our merch was all messed up overseas because of Brexit and and shipping and and customs. It, like ev- we were chasing a little bit of the merch and we couldn't send that much out because of it either. And we weren't making any money on it, but we wanted to have it available to fans, you know. Yeah. So yeah. it just it's all sticky and tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever think that you would be in charge of this many logistical things? Never. I mean, it's so much, you know, and, you know, that unit just on the European tour is like 10 to 12 people, depending on the day. Musicians, crew, drivers. So generally it's 10 to 12 people riding on a bus together. And that's Mm -hmm. just on tour, let alone, you know, label booking agents publicists like publishers like all that it's a small army of people that i mean you're sort of at the top of the structure and you're also sort of not in certain ways too you're hiring people that know how to do it better than you and also just the attention that you're able to give it if you're really going to be a musician full-time i work with people that are my friends and i consider them family and i've worked with a lot of people for a long time now you're also sort of an employer, though, right? Like you're, you're kind of responsible for, for these people's livelihood. That's got to feel heavy. Yeah, especially during COVID, you know. What did you do? <laughs> well, I mean, I kept telling my agent, like, sure, I'll do that tour if COVID isn't a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking that, like, that'll never happen. But, you know, in 2020, it was just, you know, that we had tours get canceled. And then, you know, they try to push it toward the end of the year. And, you know, I remember having conversations with my manager and he, you know, who's also my partner, Zeke. And I'd be like, well, how do we know that this is okay?" He's like, well, we just have to say yes until we don't feel safe about it. And we're just going to follow the guidelines and like only do things in our comfort level. And. As we learned what was safe and unsafe, like we'd say, okay, I'll say yes until it's unsafe. And, you know, we just keep crossing our fingers for each other and working as much as we can. For my bandmates, I would try to take on projects and involve them on it from afar if I was asked to do something. Yeah. And just make sure that they felt in the loop. We help them get loans and, you know, got in touch with the right people for them to help get any support that they needed. But yeah. So I've just seen you go from from being someone I saw selling T-shirts at a merch booth to basically an employment agency. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's the music industry can be a well-oiled machine. But, you know, I Zeke and I just had this conversation yesterday because we're like, as, as much as like we want to act like we're professionals and everything, it's like at the end of the day, the day it's fucking rock and roll and like yeah. we love making music we love playing and we have an awesome group of people around supporting us and like everyone that's doing it like you've got to be passionate about it because there's going to be things that we forget about it's not going to be perfect we're going to make mistakes and we're all just trying to make art and like be like be a tight-knit group like you create a family and then you and then you kind of spin out into the world you know Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. 
Well, this episode of Talk House is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, The Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. Tour has that funny equality where these the people you're with seem like the only other three-dimensional beings in the universe because everyone else just flies away from you. Like you see somebody and you're not going to see them tomorrow. They're just gone. It's pretty wild. I mean, <laughs> do you, on that note, do you miss touring? <laughs> uh, there's things I miss. I mean, I miss playing. I miss playing mm-hmm. for sure a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out how to sort of get back into that in some ways. I've been trying to start with like this one big show in Austin next year in May that would be both Shearwater and Loma. And then it's like, well, and then we'll both be rehearsed, you know, enough to where if we can work out some other opportunities after that, then we'll be able to do it. You told me a little bit about the show when I saw you in Hamburg, but is how can you talk about it now? Like, where are you at? I can talk about it. I mean, I don't know if it'll happen. It's so far nobody <laughs> has said no. So I keep just like proceeding as if it's actually going to happen and, and hoping that all the finances work out for it eventually. I think they will. But I think it's it's usually a little like what you're saying about COVID. You just sort of say yes to stuff and act like it's, you know, what you're doing. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how far it can get you, I think, because eventually other people go, oh, okay, I guess that's happening. And then they, and it's at the end, it seems like it was inevitable. <laughs> it's also fun just to have, a, I mean, especially these days to have just some kind of goal out there in the future that you're trying to meet that you set for yourself. Like we are a community still, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's nice to, cre- at least to create one mm-hmm. in that space, but gosh, this is also far removed from, you know, just writing songs and, and playing, you know, you never thought you'd have to make something this big in order to be able to do that. Now you're an event planner. <laughs> Suddenly you're an event planner. So you have, there's two records coming, right? So which ones? Well, you have a Shearwater record. Yeah, that one just came out. And then there's an, a Loma one, right? Yeah, there's a new Loma record, Loma 3, which is a big mess right now. 
And is that, can I say that? <laughs> I never oh, yeah. know anymore. <laughs> I don't see any point in keeping this stuff secret. I mean, <laughs> if, I were be- if I were Beyonce or something, then maybe that'd be a problem. <laughs> I'm working on this book too. And I, people occasionally get kind of cagey about like the subject of their book as if someone's going to steal your subject or something. But it's, I feel like it's better for me to just talk about the fact that I'm doing it. Two albums <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a second book. Jeez, second book. <laughs> well, you know, a body can't just sit around. It's fun to to do these different things, though. Part of it involves like weird sea life in Antarctica. And this is a world I knew absolutely zero about. And it is so weird. Like I'm looking at, uh, I have this book called Antarctic Macrobenthos, which I've been reading a lot lately. And it's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm holding it up to the camera, which you won't be able to see. But there, <laughs> these are just a few of the examples of the strange species that live in Antarctica. These are a bunch of sea spiders right here, which are related to actual spiders. Some of them are like the size of Frisbees and they're just so freaking bizarre. And all of these creatures are, it just looks like a field guide to alien life. Like here's a... Uh, Here's some isopods here. This is terrible podcast etiquette right here. <laughs> are they currently existing or are they prehistoric? No, these are alive now. It's amazing because some of these things are, are recognizable in fossils that are 400 million years old. They're like, there are these things called feather stars. They're related to starfish a little bit, but they look like ferns. But if you imagine like an ornamental fern that if you surprised it, like jumped up and flew away. <laughs> sort of like that, that is so crazy. It's so much fun to spend time thinking about this vast world about which I know the tiniest bit. And it has nothing to do with music at all. But somehow like stretching out into that world and thinking about you know, other parts of life that aren't human beings. I think it really feeds the music in ways that I can't describe exactly. It helps things not feel finite, right? Because yeah, precisely. Yeah, it's just like another universe. I mean, what do you what what do you do that's not music? <laughs> I love cooking. I love trying d- difficult recipes, even when they don't come out perfect, because it's I find it very zen, you know, mm-hmm. to mix flavors together that you wouldn't even necessarily know would go well together, and also turning people onto food they didn't know that they would like, like even. You know, getting my five-year-old into like into sushi was really, really fun. How did you do that? He just thought it looked really cool because he started getting into fish. And so we'd, we'd start pushing the limits a little bit. And um, like he, he ate, he's eaten oysters. He's, um, he, he's, he likes smoked salmon. And so like as we saw that he was starting to get into just the fish part, then we thought, okay, well, then maybe the little rolls will be fun. But then between the chopsticks and the dipping and like now he's like venturing out into other flavors. He's not into spicy yet, but he does like to venture out, which is fun to see. I was like one of five kids, so my parents couldn't be very adventurous. And when you have a couple picky eaters, you just kind of go with like what's the easiest thing for everybody. But, you know, I think that helped me later in life venture out. But I always liked it. I love the kitchen. I love what it, you know, what it represents and like just the communal kind of social, like also learning how to let go and share and divvy up like, you know, the the tasks when it comes to cooking. I think it's you can tell a lot about a person by how they cook with other people. <laughs> it's not that different from a band in a lot of ways. Exactly. You have to learn how to delegate or you have to be able to take, you know, take an order or ask questions if you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> like I still want to take no, I, I won't go on a tangent about cooking but that's it's one of the things I, I like to do when I'm not making music yeah 
was about to ask you one more cooking question. What what uh, <laughs> what's an experiment that's worked out well for you? I wanted to have like a tapas style party uh, for New Year's, and I did paella for the first time, which is actually Whoa. very com- yes, very complicated. <laughs> you got to get the arborio rice. You have to get the special pan because like there's something in the pan and how it conducts heat that it cooks it like perfectly and you have to kind of have it at a lower heat for a very long time so that it doesn't burn but you still have to allow the crust to form and you know and saffron is such as like a don't it's a subtle I mean if you use too much you like ruin the dish because it's like very strong for just a pinch you know I was able to time like timing wise get the paella out right after I had like done a bunch of little finger foods, which I'm, I'm just not good at timing. And I'm not, you know, I'm not the most, the best social butterfly and hosting in a, like a little party or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but just, I, I was proud of my paella for only having done it once. And so this is so much like putting on a show, all these things have to happen and it's exact schedule. And like all these people have to work together and it's all good. It's, uh, no, it makes you admire hosts more that like they can when they have the food and they time it right where like it's warm by the time you get it and they can still I can I go to parties and I can remember people I went I went to parties and I just <laughs> I remember say, you're, <laughs> you're like what are you doing mythical distant past. <laughs> oh my god I know um but you know when someone can you can see them floating around the room but like have an internal clock to know when they need to check on things and like they I just I don't have that you know I'm I'm like glued to the kitchen and I still can't get timing quite right but you know it's like <laughs> Amelia Bedelia in the kitchen you know? <laughs> <laughs> Amelia Bedelia's paella would be something else though Thanks for getting the reference. I know it's an old one. Oh yeah, no, Amelia <laughs> for for those of you who don't know, was a, a a children a character in children's books who would take everything literally, right? That was her thing. <laughs> yes. Like she was. I remember being asked to make a sponge cake, and she like cut up a sponge and made a cake out of it. Oh uh, yeah, and she went to prune the bushes, and she put actual prunes on them. Yeah, she's <laughs> <laughs> very silly, very silly. Like, and and always like has the biggest heart, but like can't ever quite get things right. You're kind of rooting for her, but you know what she's going to do. And and the, the fun of it is, is for kids is, I think is like, is anticipating like the moment she gets an instruction, you think, Oh, I know what she's going to do. She's going to put prunes <laughs> on all the bushes and cut up a sponge. <laughs> My son cracked up when I read it to him. I still love it. What makes him laugh? Oh, uh, he loves um, like accidents, you know, um, like he, <laughs> People falling down. Like he, he was what he was watching Cool Runnings, uh-huh. and uh, like you know about the Jamaican bobsled. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're practicing, and they like crash into something, and they all fall out, and like the whole partition falls down. And you know he had it on with headphones. Like we were on a road trip, and he had his headphones on. And I just heard him laughing hysterically, and. And he laughs in this certain way. Like, are you watching Cool Runnings again? He's like, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he likes, he likes, um, you know, he loved the Sandlot. He loved the scene where um, the kid plays a trick on the, the lifeguard uh, where he pretends to drown and she takes him out of the pool and then he kisses oh, yeah. her. It's a different kind of laugh where it's like wrong. You know, but <laughs> like, oh, that shouldn't have happened. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> you know. Do you remember like being a kid and and what it felt like when something was so funny that you just couldn't believe it? 
my dad took me to see Home Alone in the theater, and I, I'm sure that I laughed before that, <laughs> the the history of laughing. But it was like, it was so contagious, and I just, you know, it was, I just felt like, because first it's like how you're experiencing it, but then also it's like how you're sharing it and the people around you that you're experiencing it with, and then that becomes part of it too, you know? First book I did was a nonfiction story about these weird birds of prey from South America. That's really like about everything in the universe, but that's sort of the keyhole it's looking through. And this next one is about Antarctica and its past and future. Um, you know, you have all the, you, you can't change the facts, but you can move them all around however you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Just like you can when you're arranging a song and you're like, okay, this has to flow this way. And this is going to go into this section this way. And we're going to make this transition happen here. And the overall arc of the thing, the arc of the record, the arc of the song, it's all the same process. And is it lumpy in here? Why am, why am I getting bored in this part? <laughs> you know, like I like this song up until about a minute 35. And then all of a sudden, somehow I lose interest in it. Why is that? What's happening? I don't know. I feel like a book would have to be something entirely different. I, I wouldn't even know where to begin you just put one word in front of the other. <laughs> it's torture. It's horrible. I don't recommend it. <laughs> it doesn't have any of the immediacy of the joy of making music with other people. You know, like you're never surprised by some, because it's all just Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. It's just like your head. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it must be a wild thing to share after making records. What were your takeaways from writing that book that you are, that will inform how you write this next one? My editor gave me really good advice, which annoyed me a lot because he was almost always right, uh, even though I resisted his his instructions every time. Because, you know, you turn the thing in like you've, you've slaved and slaved and like tried to make this thing that works for you. And you hand it to your editor and he goes, you know, I really think that one chapter is too long. You're like, oh, that's the best one. But, <laughs> no notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. He encouraged me to write through the transitions. Because especially in the writing something like that, this big nonfiction narrative that puts all these different things that seem like they don't belong together, together. I would, at first, I was just writing little sections and then having a little dash and then having another section and a little dash and having another section. And he said, you start, you stop, you start, you stop, just right through these transitions. That was super, super helpful. You know, when you're on stage and you feel like you're about to lose the audience mm-hmm. and you just desperately don't want to lose them and you like tr- you lean in even harder to try to keep from losing them. Absolutely. <laughs> Every sentence feels like that a lot of the time. I always assume that whoever is reading is about to throw the book down in disgust. And so I'm like, how can I entertain you and keep you going into the next thing here? What creature can I offer up for you? What landscape can I paint for you? Like, how can I, or a human character that you can sort of hang out with so that it's not just talking about a bunch of weird animals you've never seen. But you asked me what I learned. I just learned that I wasn't going to get it right the first time, no matter mm-hmm. what which I, I think, you know, you always dream of just being able to come right out of the gate and be like, ta-da, it's brilliant. Um, but it's, it just doesn't happen. And I'm terrible about waiting till the last minute to do things because I'm terrified. But with the book, you just couldn't do it. You can't write a book in a night. It's not possible. So I just mm-hmm. had to pace myself and, and just keep nosing into it, even when I didn't want to do it anymore. Mainly, I guess the thing I learned was that it did, in fact, eventually end, which gives me a lot of hope that this, this one will too. You know, at least it's possible. <laughs> was it harder to start or end the writing process? Harder to start, definitely, because you're trying to figure out where to drop it in. And mm-hmm. I wrote the beginning three or four times in different, completely different places. And they started mm-hmm. with different episodes, different places in time before I finally found the one that, that let me get into the thing that way. The thing is, a book is so linear. I mean, with music, you can serve up just a sound. 
mm-hmm. that gives you a feeling. And that's enough for you in the moment. But because all you have are some words, you have to, it's relentlessly linear. Like stuff has to flow. Every sentence has to connect to the one after it. Uh, now I'm starting to talk myself out of writing this next one. <laughs> but Sharon, you've got how much? Uh, how much more do you have to go now in this album cycle? Are you already looking towards the next one, or can you even imagine? We're about to do a big five-week tour. I leave in like a week or so. But I am looking ahead. When we were doing just pre-production for the tour, like after the record was made, and we were figuring out how we were going to do these songs live. I got to go into a studio space in Joshua Tree uh, to hash out just the, you know, just playing with our band and like feeling what that would be like again, because we hadn't all been in the same room yet. And we had a little extra time at the end of the week after rehearsing to just jam. And I've never jammed before. And I've always talked about writing and playing in this way, but we just had a, we had a few hours to do that at the end of like a really awesome week. Just had breakfast together, we played, had lunch together, we played, had dinner together yeah. and watched a show and went to bed. Oh, it sounds like heaven. It was so nice. And we wrote like a couple songs while we were there. And I just, I, I let go in a very different way. And the music isn't necessarily what I, I would have done myself, you know, but like as this new entity, um, it's something that I, I think I want to explore. Yeah. And so I think that's my next mode is just starting with a blank slate in a space together and seeing what happens. Isn't it exciting to not know what's going to happen? Sometimes. <laughs> in, in that sense. In, the... in that sense, yeah. Because, you know, everyone's like, well, what's your next thing? I'm just like, I don't really know. But, like, I, I don't like doing the same thing over and over again. No, exactly. And, and after a while, you kind of run through the, the list of your habits. Actually, this reminds me, this is sort of, I think, the last question I should ask you. But it's th- this time when I just saw you, I mean, it had probably been, it had been a long time since I'd seen you perform. I think it was 2012 or something, last time I saw you. And you were so different on stage now. Like you you play guitar some, but not as much. And a lot more of the time, you're just there with the microphone. And you have this really sort of easy but forceful presence um, that's that's... I don't know quite how to describe it. It's like the superhero version of you. Like it was you. Like I recognize like, no, that's totally Sharon. It didn't seem like some put on thing where you're trying to be some character that you aren't. But it was a very honest expression of a certain version of you. And how did you learn to access that? Honestly, it started when I was making Remind Me Tomorrow with John Congleton. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like he saw something in my music that I don't think I had seen before. You're the one that I talked to about John Congleton before I knew I was going to work with him. And yeah. said, when you're ready to work with like a producer that will take your songs to another place, then he's your person, you yeah. know? And I was ready at that point just because I had been re-recording my demos over and over again, and they weren't getting better. And I, I realized this because I wasn't letting go. And we went into the studio and he he picked all of the musicians and he hired the perfect studio band. And I got to just go in there as a singer. And I had never done that before. And so now I'm playing with all these amazing musicians and it just kind of heightened my awareness of I people know I know how to play. Right. I mean, I think at this point, you know, I don't have this insecurity where people will be like, oh, she doesn't write her own songs. She, she doesn't know how to play these instruments. But actually, when I'm able to just sing 
most of the time. I can actually be a better performer by not playing. I mean, sometimes I need to play the guitar to feel a certain song, but as I'm learning to let go and just sing and focus on singing, <laughs> it, it, it just makes the song and the performance in the live setting feel much different. I can interact with the audience more than if I were playing and it's only just circular with the band. But also the music and the tones and the sonic palette that he helped me create on that record gave me the confidence to even reach for this alter ego that I knew that I had. And it's not an alter ego, as, as Zeke would say, it's elevated Sharon. Yeah. If I go to karaoke night and sing my favorite song, I mean, like, that's <laughs> what I want it <laughs> to be. It's like Sharon karaoke and just, I don't know, it's, it's <laughs> nice to let go and nice to just not be that quiet, sensitive kid. Like, I'm still a sensitive kid, but I, you know, I can own it a little bit more now. <laughs> That's great. I can't believe that we've known each other so long. I know. Yeah. We've grown old, Sharon. We've grown <laughs> old. <laughs> oh, I love you so much. I love you, too. It's great to see you. And you've always had faith in me, and that's always meant the world. And I'm just so proud of you for everything you're doing. <laughs> Likewise, lady. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Sharon Van Etten and Jonathan Myberg for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please do follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and at TalkHouse.com, where you'll find a bunch of Myberg's essays, too. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.